Hello and welcome back to the Making Things Work podcast, where we discuss all things digital transformation and leadership in the workplace. I'm your host, Duncan Pryor, and I help organizations simplify and transform through the use of technology. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Gus Shellikins, who is the founder of Sustainability Leadership Forum. And the title of today's show is Sustainable Work. Hi there, Gus. Hi, Duncan. How are you today? Very good. Thank you for inviting me to join you. No, no problem at all. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation today. And it was brilliant to um, to record the podcast a couple of months ago with uh, your colleague Deborah Webster as well. Um, might come up that might come up during the chat today. But what we like to do on the podcast, and what I very much want to do today, is is to sort of jump in with 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 the, the topic. Talking before this, we started talking about work and sustainability. But from our uh, previous uh, chats where we've been preparing for this. I really want to start by sort of diving in by just recapping the climate change crisis right from the start. And then we'll we'll sort of get into the topics and your experience, Gus, after that. A lot of technical language and and jargon out there. And I feel that sometimes that tends to end up downplaying the whole situation. And and you can have a feeling that things are happening without you or me or anyone else actually sort of doing anything. So let's go straight in and clarify that Gus and um, could you just recap for us that where we are with the current climate change crisis in the world sure happy to let's start with the story in uh, 1988 there was a top NASA scientist called James Hansen who very famously and accurately warned Congress in the US that global warming would soon become evident and most of the members of Congress listened very politely but then did nothing about it And if we roll forward 35 years, a few weeks ago, a new paper um, from scientists from over a dozen institutions, including James Hansen, was published. And it warned that the world's average temperature would surpass 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial times within the next couple of years. Now, this was was quite a bombshell to, to people like myself who work in the industry, because this is much faster than most existing forecasts had predicted. And the study also went on to say that due to global warming that is already locked in without extreme action by the international community, governments, businesses, societies, temperatures will reach two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels before 2050, again, much faster than most predictions. Now, you you and I, uh, Duncan, have already seen some of the early impacts of this in recent years. We've seen more frequent and more significant storms, rainfall and flooding, and more extensive and sustained fires around the world. Droughts, extreme heat, cold conditions, changes in ocean temperatures, all of these have made headlines over the last few weeks and months. Now, as temperatures approach two to three degrees of warming, this is going to get worse. And we're going to see even more significant impacts in the coming years, remaining species being wiped out, more than a billion, one and a half billion people being displaced from their home home regions and starting a migration to other parts of the world, yields of stable crops like rice and wheat that we rely on will face a major decline. And this will trigger sustained food supply disruptions globally as well. Much of the tropics will be rendered uninhabitable for humans due to temperature increases. And given that currently over 50% of global GDP is dependent upon nature, when this happens, existing business models will will be severely challenged and in many cases will fail. Why is it happening? Um, Just a quick recap on that. Some of you may be aware that there's nine planetary boundaries or processes that are vital to the healthy functioning of the planet. And these are based on what we take from the system in the areas of biodiversity, fresh water, and land use. And the remaining six areas come from the waste that we deposit back in the environment, things like greenhouse gases, um, novel waste that we've created like concrete, for example, nutrient overloads from fertilizers. And the key message here is that if we keep our activities to a safe level, the planet's own processes can handle it. But in six of the nine vital life support systems, we've now blown well past the safe zone. So we're in the danger zone where we, as well as every other species, are now at risk. I really like this idea of the nine planet boundaries. It it enables you to encapsulate 
the the situation on and the, to do with the way the planet works quite simply because uh, it gets uh, otherwise the whole subject gets quite complicated quite quickly um so thanks for doing that i think it's so important just to just to spell out in real really black and white terms it, it, exactly where we are because as i said it gets a little bit lost in in, in all the in all the detail and one of the challenges for us as um as humans and people that work is that we we really always encourage to come into work to 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 be positive to uh to solve problems and so on and so forth really um the fact of the matter is is that most companies are really only making any money which we'll come on to as well in a second by consuming the world's natural resources and you you can you can tend to think that the only companies doing that are the ones that just extract sort of raw materials from the ground but really every company in the world is 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 kind of cheating and as deborah mentioned uh, when we were chatting that there's this concept that if it's not on your balance sheet it's on somebody else's yeah and um it's 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 it, it makes it very very difficult for someone in the workplace to think well what can i do no that that's right duncan um and i, I mentioned earlier that most of the gdp in the world is dependent on nature what may not be clear to everyone is that capitalism really is the root cause of the ecological crisis that we're facing today, and also a key barrier to solving it. And there's two reasons for it. Firstly, capitalism can't exist without economic growth. Growth is is the mantra that we've all been chasing for years and, and told uh, growth is good. And economic growth is also the reason why our emissions have been increasing over the last 30 years, and further growth will make it impossible to decarbonize in time. Um, the reason that's important is unless we do decarbonize, we run the risk of activating what's known as tipping points in the ecological system. And a tipping point, a very simple example is if the, the ice on Greenland melts, you can't suddenly refreeze it and end up with an ice sheet on Greenland again. So the, these are sort of one-way consequences that once they happen, they're very, very difficult to, to undo. Another example would be if Siberia defrosts, for example, the amount of methane that gets lost, there's no way to capture that and refreeze that in the, the permafrost. And the second um, reason um, why capitalism creates a problem is that our minds have been shaped by capitalism. And it's stopping us from perhaps seeing both the role capitalism plays in the cause of climate change, but also the full scope of solutions available to address the crisis. We're reaching in our tool bag and using the same tools over and over again to solve a very, very different problem that we've never faced before. Yeah, I often think um, the the picture in, in my mind is 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 of uh, the, the Victorians who you know in the in, in Industrial Revolution, where there was there was uh, sort of people running businesses walking around in top hats and everyone was absolutely nose to the grindstone, um, uh, working seven days a week and. We can kind of fool ourselves a little bit, it seems to me, but but actually the the, the spewing smoke coming and, and and pollution coming out of chimneys that's not happening where you live, it's but it's happening somewhere else. And then and actually we're still all those the grindstone. And okay, so when we work five days a week now, not seven, but actually quite a lot of people work six. So it it, it strikes me as maybe being quite similar to the to where it was back then. It's just maybe a bit better. Not much has changed, and I've got I've got a few other uh, good stories for you, Duncan, later on, uh, which which touch on that as well. We we think we've changed, but we've not. Right. Yes. Okay. Well, thanks for that that, that sort of introduction. That I think that sets the scene very well. So, can we go now back to yourself and the Sustainability Leadership Forum? And can you just yeah just introduce yourself and 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 the work of of the forum? Yes, I'd love to. Um, my background is as someone who studied science at university. Um, I focused on oceanography and biology, and then I moved into management consultancy. And for 15 years or so, I worked with and within some of the largest companies in the world on a range of strategy, business, IT projects, and programs of work. And in most of these, I had responsibility for pulling, pulling together the, the overall plan and then supporting and managing people in enabling outcomes to be achieved. So it taught me a lot about how businesses work, what drives them, and the roles that people play inside them. The second part of my career then began around 2007, when I had the opportunity to move into the sustainability and climate change team whilst at PwC. 
And here I managed to bring together my, my interest in the science and the concerns around the natural world with my business consulting experience. And this was also the time, you might remember, we had the Energiewende in Germany, which um, kicked off a huge feed-in tariff program and a, a boom in the solar PV industry. And active discussions began across the EU and the rest of the world about using renewables. The most recent, and I guess the most important and exciting part of my career began a few weeks ago when I set up the Sustainability Leadership Forum. This was founded by, by myself with the help of two very good friends, James Duthie and Deborah Webster, to fill what we saw was a gap in the market. Most of us will hopefully be aware, as we mentioned earlier, perhaps from their personal engagement, that significant action is needed at all levels to prepare ourselves for the changes that are coming our way as a result of climate change. But many individuals don't have the knowledge, skills, or insights to be able to manage or deliver change in their organizations or personal lives. And for example, recent studies have shown that most CEOs have no knowledge of ESG or sustainability matters, and this is worrying. So we set up the Sustainability Leadership Forum to guide organizations helping them to envision what a sustainable future could look like for themselves, steering them towards longer-term strategies rooted in good environmental, social, and governance principles. And what we like to do is we help organizations course-correct their planetary impact. And we do this with board members, the CEO, the CFO, particularly the CSO and their team. And we provide them with the necessary tools and coaching and support. And it also reflects the fact that whilst climate and sustainability professionals should be at the very epicenter of innovation and strategic learning within organizations at this time, they rarely are. And that's because in most settings, climate and sustainability professionals are not getting paid to change important things. They're getting paid to protect important things from change. Yes, and often those roles, you can only, you, the, the only, um, scope that you really have is is to bring in experts uh, such as yourself to help is if you if you're the permanent member of staff within a within a corporation um, all you can do is bring in other people so i think it's um i think it's going to work out extremely well uh, you touched on something there which is probably just to cover off another little bit of the, the terminology is because i've made the mistake in the past maybe other others are thinking that the the s in esg stands for sustainability when actually it stands for social so the the, the 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 we get into this sort of terminology about ESG and sustainability and various other terms. Could you could you just sort of break those down a little bit? Because I think it's worth recapping um, for everyone. Because like myself, I sometimes get a bit. Yeah. It all sort of sounds like it's all the same thing. <laughs> well, I, th I think we're we're very good at coming up with labels um, for lots of things, and it's uh, it's certainly happened in the sustainability space, and and. Right. My experience of working with companies um, in, in many countries and of, of different sizes is that sustainability definitely means different things to different people. Um, for some, it only relates to revenues, financial sustainability of a business, because this is all that's being measured and what gets measured gets done. For others, um, sustainability sometimes is, is a word that's used to describe the continuity of the business. How do we ensure you know, succession? enduring sort of legacy of a business, um, targets being met, etc. So I guess the, the two key terms that are bandied around are ESG and sustainability. And they're two distinct concepts, and they shouldn't be used synonymously. If we start with ESG, um, environment, social governance, this has its origins in the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investment, UNPRI. It's a publication from around the mid-2000s that used ESG as a basis for a risk management and due diligence process. So I'll repeat that, risk management and due diligence. Um, it was used to assess the risks faced by an organization that could materially impact its value from an environment, social, or governance point of view. Sustainability, on the other hand, first emerged in the 1980s and addresses the impacts of an organization on the external environment, on the economic and social dimensions. So sustainability is often summarized as the triple bottom line of people, planet, and profit. 
i.e. on the positive long-term value that a business can create across a number of dimensions. What's counterintuitive is that an organization could meet its ESG risk criteria while still being unsustainable, whilst the reversed, of course, is unlikely. Another approach, just a final term to throw into the discussion, is regenerative business models. And these aim to have companies not only avoid negative impacts, but also to actively improve the well-being of the environment and society within which they operate. Now, this requires a rethinking of business strategy, design of products, um, and we're seeing some very, very interesting examples around this beginning to appear. And just to finish off on, on other labels, um, because we like to simplify, simplify things, there's also other labels that have been used in business. Corporate social responsibility is something that's been around for years. B Corp, net zero, science-based targets. These all take a specific frame of reference in relation to the performance of a company that's then used to justify its way of operating, attract investment, and satisfy regulatory and compliance requirements. Only a few actually take into account the pricing of externalities and the impact and dependencies that companies have on the natural world. Um, we also talked previously, Duncan, about the sustainable development goals that the UK, UN came out with in 2015. And most people are aware of those and, and realize that there's 17 areas that collectively require attention. What's important is that all 17 SDGs and the 169 targets that underpin them need to be addressed globally. Climate change is a, a global issue, a global risk multiplier. So it requires a change in mindset at a societal level. Getting the labels right, using the right terminology, I think will become even more important in years to come. Yeah, so, so the, the, the E in ESG then is more about, um, to, to put it in maybe one term, like not being sued because you're polluting a river, as it were, rather than fundamentally um, looking at the sustainability of the business in the long term. Yeah, and so this term regenerative has come up because it's also being used with um, this this concept of generative AI. And this is, so this this there's a good I suppose maybe thinking positively, there's a term this the rege the regenerative sustainability term does sound like something that people could get excited about. Perhaps you could talk a bit about where you think companies are on this sort of scale because that that would be the sort of sustainability summit, if you like, where you really are you've um, fully sort of embraced the sustainability within your organization. Perhaps you can explain this to us a bit more about what that actually means as well and sort of where companies are at the moment. Yes. Um, I mean, businesses are, um, I, th I think if you, if you look at uh, the business community globally, they obviously fall into cohorts and some of the cohorts um, are, are not surprising. There are always people who do nothing. And so there are always companies that do nothing and they will not do nothing. They will not do anything until they're forced to do something. You've then got a, a second level of, of company that's realized that um, they, if, if they don't do anything, they will pay penalties, fees, etc. So they're the ones who focus on compliance typically. They will do what's needed to, to keep their nose clean and perhaps nothing else. You've then got a third category of, of companies that have realized that actually sustainability offers um, efficiency, gains, savings, and it makes good business sense. So they've engaged in lots of practices uh, and put systems in place that focus on how they can reduce, for example, water use, energy use, for example. A fourth category of company might then realize that, oh, cost savings are good, but actually we could do more. We should we should start thinking about sustainability in terms of our, our strategy and our products and our design. So there's a more strategic use of sustainability to look for white space in the market, to outcompete some of their competitors, um, to come up with innovative products, to horizon scan and sort of to be ahead of, you know, where where the, the rest of the market is. And then the, the final stage is this regenerative uh, approach. And at the moment, it tends to be smaller companies because it's obviously easier to change things around in a smaller company than it is a bigger company. And these businesses are, are designing their whole strategy, their operations, their processes, their systems, the way they engage with people, societies, etc., with a view to constantly 
nourishing, replenishing, regenerating the natural environment and the social environment in which they operate. So everything they do has to have a positive outcome from an environmental and a social point of view. This is new. It challenges our existing sort of uh, organizational model. The economic system, of course, investors don't understand it because you're not based on a an extractive model of squeezing assets and trying to get high returns. So it doesn't make sense. But it does make sense if you look at the wider picture and begin to measure some of the, the other outcomes that you achieve as well, the non-financial outcomes in many cases, which we're not measuring today. And a, a very simple example from, from a few years ago that, that I used with a client was you've got a business case for a project, you've done your return on investment, and you've got a return on investment of, I don't know, 15, 20% or something. This is the classic way of, of approaching, whether, uh, of deciding whether a yeah. project should go ahead or not. Um, and then I've got another calculation of exactly the same business case that takes into account other areas that you haven't measured in the, the first uh, business case assessment, which show that actually there is a a consequence of, you know, you've used too much water or you've destroyed too much nature and you're going to have an impact on your business in the longer term in terms of operating costs. And actually, option B, a completely separate one, which was discounted the first time around, is the sensible one to take forward when you balance both the non-financial and the financial return on investment. Most companies don't take that level of sophistication. They do a financial assessment and that's it. And based on that, they make a decision, completely ignore the cost of inputs, the cost of outputs uh, for which they don't need to pay, um, and make a short-term profit. So that needs to change. And I think what we're seeing, which is great, particularly from a small and medium-sized business point of view, is a lot of business owners can see much more value in that and you know, a, a much more viable business in the long term, particularly given the planetary changes that we're seeing at the moment. Yes, and I can see and, I, and sympathize as well where someone like myself, for example, who's done lots of uh, technology solution projects and mm. so on over the years. And a lot of it is is what you call compliance related, isn't it? Where we started off when I was working there, various financial regulations, more recently you have GDPR and um, and so the, these, these laws and regulations come out and then you have to comply with them. And then yep. there's projects. And then we've all complied with with them now, and now we're, we're we're all happy. And that that's very much the mindset, isn't it? We've got sort of the business compliance in uh, sort of by the side, making sure we're not breaking any rules, and uh, sort of then sort of the two things come together a little bit. But what we're talking about here is that governments you can't really legislate for everything in a in a kind of Sarbanes Oxley GDPR type of way here. Something completely different has to happen. Yes, and and. I mean, I, I'm very familiar with the the compliance environment, um, and we th we think we've achieved the goal. We've delivered the output that we're hoping for as a result of putting those things into place. But we haven't. All yep. we've done, I guess, is is put more process into place, um, created more work for individuals, but no one's actually measuring the outcomes or the outputs. Um, another great example. I mean, I talk about the health of the planet, but let's talk about our own personal health. Um, and if you look at the NHS, full of wonderful people, they've done a fantastic job of supporting us over the last couple of years. But again, it's a classic example of where there is far too much complexity, process, uh, checks, balances, etc., that it get in the way of just keeping people healthy. And we do the same ourselves. Um, we're very happy to live our life the way we, we want to. You know, our body can cope with a lot of it. But in many cases, people will show up age 60 and then say to the NHS, save me. Um, or as in fact, you know, doing the right things and measuring the outcomes and outputs as you go through your life and making sure that your blood pressure remains within safe levels, your cholesterol is in safe levels, etc. You have a much better chance of remaining healthy and, and living a, a longer and fuller life. So... We're, we're sort of programmed in a way to, I guess, focus on process and think that that's tick the box and taking care of things. Certainly in relation to client, climate, it that doesn't work. You touched on a, a really interesting point here, which I, I don't think uh, I haven't heard come up too much. And it's the, there's the, the, let's talk about that a little bit more because we're, we're not talking about the individual 
as um, someone who is, as we talked about there, complies with their recycling and they get busy with that. It's about your own, uh, the relationship between um, sustainability and solving the climate crisis, climate crisis and our own personal development. Um, yeah. I just thought we, we touched on it briefly uh, when we were uh, when we were preparing for this. I just thought it would be really great, great to explore that a little bit more. Yes, I mean we uh, the world. Well, the the world that we've constructed is ultimately about individuals. You know, individual minds, decisions, etc. Companies are ultimately individuals as well. So if we we focus on individuals a little bit, um, my my view, and you know, we we can probably agree on this, is that individuals are complex but they're also similar in many ways. We're all driven by our primary needs, whether it's shelter, food, warmth, security at a basic level. Um, and we want to provide the above for our families to belong in a tribe. In some cases, some people are driven to uh, you know, uh, go for leadership positions and so on. But we're also very simple creatures. We do what we're incentivized to do, and much of our society has developed over centuries um, to put in place the structures and systems that will deliver on these needs. So in a city with sanitation, with running water, with electricity, with food available, we're ticking a lot of the boxes. And this offers security for, for some, but not all individuals. And there have been benefits from doing this because we've seen that in terms of nutrition, lifespan, living standards, access to water, access to electricity in many countries. But some of our other traits um, undo some of these benefits. So laziness, a desire for quick solutions to problems, looking for the least cost option, unwillingness to consider wider impacts have resulted in systems being put in place that, as mentioned above, are largely extractive, don't measure the true costs or the negative impacts, and are largely focused on continuous growth. And once these are in place, we're reluctant as a species to change these systems, to invest further amounts when the existing systems are seen as delivering on our needs. And this takes me back to, to a point on the, the SDGs that we also discussed earlier, Duncan, which is they came out in 2015. They arose as a result of the financial crisis in 2008 when people realized this, this shouldn't happen again. And we're now eight years on, and the first sort of measurement point, significant measurement point is in 2030, and we're far behind what we need to do on all of the SDGs, including SDG 8, which looks at, uh, at work. And we, have, we as individuals have a key role to play in all of this by becoming better informed, being willing to engage openly on the issue, introducing small and lasting changes, not only in your own lifestyle, but as one of your previous uh, speakers, uh, Scott Stoneham also mentioned, their ways of working, bringing it to the office, uh, collectively engaging around issues, and putting pressure on, on governments and the companies that they, they buy from. So key takeaways, I guess, for individuals, become more informed about the scale of change that's happening, understand how the unpriced climate, ecological and economic risks could impact you, where you live, how you live, what you do, where you work. Make sure you make the changes needed in your lifestyle to reduce unnecessary risks and prepare yourself for new opportunities. Um, we will see large-scale migration happening in the next 5, 10, 15 years as people begin to realize that they can't stay where they are. A very simple example, the border wall that President Trump was looking to build in the US came about as a result of agricultural collapse in Central America. If you have a family and your crops have failed several seasons, you will pack up and go somewhere else where you can be a farmer. So these things are all predictable. Um, we can see them coming, but we can also intervene um, to make sure that people can stay where they want to stay and do what they want to do. But it requires individuals to take these four steps, becoming more informed, understanding, making sure that you make the changes, and then preparing yourself. The information's out there. They just need to engage with it. Yes, yeah, so, so as an individual, 
just picking up on the point about uh, individuals, if you if you focus on your own learning, uh, apart from just the uh, some of the specific uh, sort of issues to do with sustainability, you'll become very informed about the whole subject, and then various other issues which which uh, such as things like cognitive dissonance, which sort of get in our way of us of us being open to. Uh, to, to new ideas and new thoughts and really taking full responsibility and accountability for our own uh, thoughts and actions we'll we'll understand those sorts of things a bit better as well then that that will there's a chance that that can then make us more influential in wh- wherever uh, uh, we're working or in our community um, that th- those those sorts of skills will come to the surface so that you can then bring your influence to bear so it's a fascinating subject, maybe one for another day where we can talk about the the the, uh, the 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 personal development skills that we can all undertake in order to apply ourselves to the problem wow. um, without so we're not just thinking that other people are doing it for us. <laughs> I mean, I, I um, for some of our listeners who have uh, children, this may sort of bring back some memories of, of when your your children were younger, certainly around the two, three and four year old stage and trying to convince an irate sort of toddler that they can't have what they want. Um, I, I think some of those traits remain embedded in us as adults as well. And therefore, you know, we, we don't we don't like change. Most of us don't like change. And once we've set our mind on something, we want that and we can't be dissuaded from it. Um, and as, as you may know, using logic with a two-year-old doesn't work. So... Uh, we need to be creative and find lots of other ways of engaging with people and having them understand and realize what the issues are and what the alternatives are and how some of the alternatives can actually be more exciting and deliver a better outcome. Yeah, simple ones. Let's just walk into school is a great, uh, a great example, isn't it? Where if everyone did that, that would be a, a that would be a big change uh, right there. You know, the um, yep. pollution and congestion is caused by that. It's not caused by people actually driving to work, as you can see that in the holidays. Yep. This roads are empty. <laughs> exactly. Going on the on the, the, the applying that same sort of concept to um, cor- companies and corporations. I, I had this idea in the past that there'll be a, a, a Darwinian sort of approach to this. There'll be companies that would fully embrace. Uh, regenerative sustainability, as, as you were discussing there, and others wouldn't. So, and the ones that would win would be the ones that did. And it's it, we would just get the outcome because because maybe historically things there have been lots of things that are much better today than they were yesterday, and that's because some companies have done a better job of, of whatever it is they're doing. But I'm I'm not sure if that sort of that Darwinian approach to to the way companies compete. You've already touched on it, really. That, that's just not going to cut it anymore, is it? No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I, I, I think there is there's certainly competition in the market, but there's also um, the point that some of the largest companies in the world are some of the biggest contributors to uh, emissions. Um, and if you took the top 100 companies and got them to clean up their act, we wouldn't have the problem we have today. So right. we, can't, we can't wait for you know economics to, to weed out those those badly performing companies because by all measures of success that we use today they're very successful companies and they make lots of money so our our measures of success and and the areas that we're we're looking at are the wrong ones really to encourage the right behaviors in the market and also the the emergence of the right businesses a lot of the the companies that that will survive in the longer term, will be the ones that set a clear climate ambition and vision. And they have an open and transparent business. And they set achievable emission reduction targets. They avoid greenwashing. They empower their employees. They influence governments in the right way, not in terms of lobbying to support their business against other competitors. Um, And they also support their ecosystems. Um, The problem is, those are not very fashionable or not very exciting. And the, re- the financial return on investment might be lower than a, a company that's run ruthlessly, you know, by, by uh, people who are just focused on financial metrics. And therefore, the system rewards the latter rather than the former. So I think we can't leave it to, you know, the, the, the market to sort this out. We need to intervene, whether it's at a, a government level, at a societal level, 
maybe through the investor lens, uh, money talks, uh, it can have a powerful influence. And then finally, from a consumer level as well, these companies wouldn't exist if we didn't buy things from them. Yes. Yeah. And you, you touched on greenwashing there, but I think it, it's become another term that just, it gets greenwashing, sports washing, and all this sort of, all these washing terms. It, 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 the whole point is completely diluted, isn't it? By uh, over time, it becomes sort of meaningless. But um, one of the talks you gave previously on YouTube is, is some corporations have talked about um, measures that they've taken, uh, sustainability measures. But um, I think uh, from our previous chats, you've said that some of this stuff really just falls into um, accounting um, to do with how you um, yeah. uh, you're not you don't dispose of things so quickly and stuff like that. Yes, and and a good I mean a good example as well is well a good way of testing whether an organization is really serious about sustainability as a whole is is to look at what they've published and and who's responsible for that. Um, if it's the marketing department in a company, then obviously it hasn't touched the operational processes at all, and the business model hasn't changed. You've just got someone doing clever marketing and communications. Um, the other way of telling if it's not really baked into business strategy is if they are very vocal about their 2050 or 2070 targets. I mean, in 25 or 40 years time, it's very easy for me to promise all sorts of things because I, I won't be in post at that point in time. What's yes. much more revealing is what I've said I will do by in the next two years, in the next five years, by 2030 or something like that. That's granular. That's short term. Um, I can't hide behind decades of inactivity. Um, I have to show that I'm making progress to achieving those targets. And to get to ambitious targets by 2030, it means I need to do something every single year, cumulatively, so that it adds up to that significant target by 2030. So any company that's um, talking loudly about 2050, 2060 targets, they haven't really taken sustainability on board. They're not really changing their business model or the way they operate at all. Um, there probably isn't a, a team in the department in place that's looking at it. Another very interesting proxy, um, Duncan, is look at the size of the finance department and look at the size of the sustainability department in a company. Okay, in big companies, you've got hundreds of yeah. people who work in finance, and they might have one or two people that work on sustainability. So, what are they more serious about? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting point. <laughs> and then, so where do you think, for looking at say UK businesses, is there a way we can look at the the UK and the companies within it as a uh, where we are on the sort of maturity scale, just to give listeners some sort of an indication? Is that, is that something that's meaningful? Um, there's there's lots of measures um, which are out there. I think the, the the danger with some of those is by being a single metric or or measure. There's too much generalization, and we lose out a lot of the the richness. Um, there was a study I saw the other day that the UK actually came in second place as the second most sustainable country in the world. Um, bit of a surprise to me, um, although. You know, there, there is legislation in place that the previous uh, government put in place, which, which is great. Let's hope we don't row back from that too much. Um, there's a, a real hotbed of small and medium-sized business in the, in the UK that are definitely leading the charge. Um, and we've seen this reaction in other countries as well, where if governments are flagging, and, and we saw this during COVID, usually people have a lot of common sense and businesses will have a lot of common sense and no what to do, uh, that's right. And so we're seeing the same, I think, with businesses in the UK who realize, actually, even if the government doesn't take action, I can see that this makes sense and we should do this. Um, the UK has a fantastic entrepreneurial spirit. There's a lot of knowledge, a lot of skills, finance, obviously, as well. It's about connecting all of those up in the right way and supporting it over a period of time so that these things can grow roots and, and really then begin to to transform how business is done. Um, so I'm, I'm positive that, you know, the UK has the ability to do something significant, but it's like a, an hourglass with sand running out. Time is running out. The longer you leave it, the harder it becomes. And there are, but there are spectacular examples, aren't they, going back in history, which we all forget of within 
a less than five year or say five year time frame, things yep. that we we think of as being completely normal yep. are are happen uh, unbelievably quickly. And you, you almost if someone told you now, you almost you wouldn't be surprised they didn't believe you. Yes, exactly. Um, I mean, I, I teased out a few examples for you today, Duncan. Um, some span more than a, a few years. I mean, there's one uh, that I came across recently about uh, meat consumption. Um, now, meat consumption is a high source of CO2 emissions. Um, farming, um, uh, destroying forests, um, raising cattle, transforming that uh, into beef burgers and, and other meat that we eat has a huge impact on the planet. Um, in Japan, for 12 centuries, until the late 19th century, the entire nation of Japan was essentially meat-free. Um, so in the 6th century, me eating meat was normal, and deer, wild boar, and, and fowl were regularly on the menu. But from 675 AD, meat was banned for part of the year, and then it became year-round, and then it lasted over a thousand years. So um, amazing. Um, it's possible. We can do it. The reasons were both spiritual and practical. Um, but of course, it's important to note that making a change like that in Japan in 675 AD in an autocratic society is probably much, much easier than changing our society now. Um, yes. If we, if we look at transport, which is another uh, significant source of emissions, how can we move away from our reliance on, on fossil fuels? If we look at the transition from the use of horses for transportation, this only took a few decades. Now, we have some numbers yep. from North America to set the scene. In the 19, in 1900, records show that there were 24 million horses being used in North America. They plowed fields, they pulled street trolleys, carriages, city vehicles, people rode them, obviously. So 24 million horses, and yet a population of 81 million people. Every family in the US was directly or indirectly dependent on the horse. Okay, that's quite significant. Within 30 to 40 years, um, they'd been replaced by automobiles. Um, so Henry Ford opened his factory in 1903, and he sold 11,000 automobiles, and the rest was history. But yeah. some people look at this and say, okay, I can see that technology has, has trumped the horse. But what we actually did, if you look at it through another lens, is just to replace one uh, form of transport that caused pollution, so horses, manure, urine, etc. The, the um, sort of mess that was created in cities was a strong driver for the change. So all we did was replace yes. one form of pollution with another form of pollution. In this case, it's a carbon-based uh, vehicle emitting CO2 and a range of other gases, which end up in the atmosphere. We don't see them on the street, so we think, we think we're fine. So an interesting insight from that is... Um, it wasn't just technology that caused the, the horse to be replaced by the car, but it was, a, uh, it, was, it was not predictable and it was not inevitable. Instead, it was a, uh, a cultural shift in society, what people felt was right. And I think we can do the same with a lot of our challenges today around transport. Two other quick ones, energy supply. Um, not not everyone will remember that uh, the UK discovered gas in 1965. And within six to seven years, an entire transmission system was built, which connected commercial and domestic users. And by 1971, natural gas was being supplied to major consumers all around the UK. So that became one of our preferred fuels for energy. And then finally, raw materials and mining, just to show that, you know, some some large-scale, significant things can still happen today very, very quickly. In March 2017, Central America's smallest country, El Salvador, voted overwhelmingly to prohibit all mining for gold and other metals. It was the first country in the world to impose a nationwide ban. And this was the result of decades of grassroots activism by those concerned about water stress and pollution. And this ban is still in place. 
although of course it continues to be attacked by big business and investors who see a, a business case there for extracting it, but then with the consequences that we've seen in other countries. So it clearly evidences that if we need to, if we want to as a society, we can make whole scale societal changes as to how we work and behave. We now need to apply this mentality to our response as we think of what does a good business look like and what sort of society do we want to be a part of? Yeah, and that, and that leads me on to my next question, which was, which I wanted to ask you was where, um, to some extent, if we're working with a business or an organization, this looks quite a lot like uh, lots of change management projects that we've all uh, worked on in the past. Yeah. Are we talking about something that could be, you could fit it into that, those kind of methodologies, or do you think we're, um, it's, it's, it's so different, it's, it's, you, you can't even call it change management in quotes? I think that's a great question. Um, I, I think it is to a large extent. Um, and the key point here is how it's framed. Um, if I approach a typical business executive and say, I'm, I'm here to talk about sustainability, in most cases, their eyes will glaze over. If instead I talk about how I can save the money, make the money, help them manage their risks, keep their people happier, I have much more chance of turning this into a longer discussion and getting their support to undertake some changes. So framing and engaging with them on their terms is very important. Um, an interesting example I, I came up with a number of years ago in discussions with colleagues um, related to the launch of the World Wide Web and how this represents in many ways um, the, the fork in the road that we face today and the way that we need to think and react uh, at this time to sustainability and climate change. So World Wide Web went live in August 1991. I was in my first job, and I remember reactions that, that my business and other businesses had at the time, trying to understand, well, what was it, and should they engage with it? They, they had all coped perfectly well in the past with the post. The mailman came every day. You had a telephone, you had a telex, some people had the fax, and their business was yes. was doing really well. You know, why why should I spend any money on on anything else, trying to understand and implement the the World Wide Web? Um, and so you ended up with with I guess a couple of camps of of businesses, some who decided um, it was just a fad and it would go away, and we're not going to waste any money on this, and others who said, oh, this looks interesting. Let's try and work out how we can build this into our business and how we can do better business. If we roll forward 30 years, you know, the, the answer is clear. The ones that survived and the ones that, that didn't. And yes. for the last few years, I mean, certainly the last uh, 20 to 30 years, we've been at a similar place as the early 90s with sustainability. Businesses, um, unfortunately, in many cases, still don't feel that they need to make a change. Um, they're still trying to decide whether climate change is a fad, whether to take it seriously and invest money into changing their business models to incorporate it. Um, and they're still trying to understand how it will help their business. But this is also the cognitive dissonance point that you mentioned. The information's out there. It's been out there for years. Yes. It's how we tell the stories. It's how we frame the, the information. It's how we make it relevant, proximate to them. And... What, what's helpful, of course, now is we do have many businesses that have taken it on board, engaged with it more seriously, and we have some fantastic case studies and success stories that we can point to. Um, so there is a tipping point, and we will get there. Um, but the challenge is we need more companies to engage with it at scale more quickly right now to make a difference. We're running out of time. And so what will be the, the, the focus, initial focus of the uh, Sustainability Leadership Forum? Uh, it's, it's just a few weeks old, isn't it? So yes. how, how will you, uh, what's your uh, plan of attack, as it were? So we've got, we've got three um, areas that we're focusing on at the moment. Um, the, the first one in relation to companies is we're recognizing that many companies still don't know what sustainability means for them. And therefore, they're not sure how to engage with it or how to respond to the topic. And some of that is working with 
management and leadership teams. Some of it's working with boards. It's around developing and sharing practical roadmaps um, that help the company understand where where they are and how to get to where they need to be. Um, and we are also looking to to impress upon them the need to include sustainability into the organization's growth strategy, not to keep it separate, not to keep it um, sort of as a as an additional sort of parallel track of work, but actually to embed it within their business strategy, their brand positioning, their corporate culture, um, and it has to be at the heart of the vision. The other area of focus is the chief sustainability officers. Um, we we're seeing a lot of demand from existing CSOs in businesses that don't have the support to deliver in their role. Um, it's a new role. It's often misunderstood. It's outside of the core leadership team. They may feel relegated, unempowered, um, but CSOs will become very, very important in future. And my view is in certainly the next 10 or 20 years, most CEOs will need to be significantly upskilled and competent in, in dealing with sustainability and climate change issues. And then finally, um, what I'm also looking to do is to try and, and build more of a community in this space. As I said, the information exists, the knowledge exists, the stories, the successes, the technologies, they're all out there. But they need to be linked up in a community as part of a platform. And yes, there's technology that can help with that, of course, but access to this is is patchy at the moment. And coming back to the individual point, a lot of us sometimes need permission to do something. So I'd like to give the executives in business and also individuals permission to engage with this and to use this and to try it and sometimes to fail, but also to succeed, to tell their own stories, which we can then share more widely as well. Okay, well, I think um, th thanks very much for that for that, guys. I think that's uh, where we could we could talk for a lot longer on this. But I think we'll I just want to wish you all the best for uh, everything uh, to do with the Sustainability Leadership Forum over the coming months and years. Uh, it's been absolutely brilliant to to catch up with you today. And what's the best way that people can catch up with you um, and reach out? Sure, thank you, Duncan. Um, anyone that would uh, like to learn more about this in in general or just get in touch can find uh, me and the Sustainability uh, Leadership Forum on LinkedIn, or you can reach out to us at sustainabilityleadershipforum.com. And we'd love to, to hear from you. Any questions to become part of the community? Um, and if we can support you as you take your next steps, that would be fantastic as well. Thanks again, Duncan. It's been uh, a great discussion this morning. Uh, thanks, Gus. Um... You can reach me, uh, Duncan Pryor, on, on LinkedIn, and you can catch up with all our previous episodes on the BML website or by searching for the Making Things Work, po work podcast on all your, your favourite platforms. If there's another um, uh, business leader you would like to, uh, you think could be a good guest for the show as well, please do reach out. We'll be back this time next month we'll, for the next episode. Uh, so thanks again, Gus. It's been really fantastic to talk to you today. Thank you.